Well, we're in Luke chapter 20. We know Jesus, it's, it's, it's uh, just a few days before he'd be tried and flogged and crucified. And the religious leaders are in his face. They're trying to publicly discredit him because he's about to undermine their entire rotten religious political system. They're not teaching the scriptures rightly. They're not representing God honestly to the people. And God himself has shown up in the person of Jesus Christ. And he's making things right. He's going to tear down the whole system. More importantly, though, he's offering salvation to the humble. Those who would repent of their sins and trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So this morning we're going to look at the danger of misinterpreting the Bible. The danger of misinterpreting the Bible. This is a church that affirms that the Bible is the Word of God. Amen? Amen. That's a quiet amen. Amen? Amen. That the Word of the Lord stands forever. Amen? That it's inerrant, infallible. It is truth. It is the good news. It is eternal It will not pass away. It contains all that we need for life and godliness. It reveals to us who God is, who man is, what our problem is and what the solution is. It it tells us all of human history, the beginning and the end. Amen? Amen. The problem is, what if we misinterpret it? Well, why would we want to do that? What if... Our sin nature tempts us to want to misinterpret the Bible because our sin nature has something other than the glory of God in mind. And so we'll see in the Sadducees religious people who believe in the Scriptures but mishandle the Scriptures. And the Word made flesh confronts them. He's the Scriptures incarnate, so to speak, And they think they know better than him. They're there to correct the scriptures, really. The word, Jesus Christ. They're arguing with the word incarnate. They're trying to correct his doctrine. And he's graciously calling them to repentance and humility and offering forgiveness if they would just humble themselves. So let's... Pick up the story. Remember, you've got these different groups of people, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the scribes, and they don't really like each other because they're all fighting over the same piece of the pie for power, prestige, money. Yet, because of their common hatred for Jesus, because he's going to topple the whole system, they build a temporary alliance, an unholy alliance aimed at destroying Jesus. But they can't just grab him publicly because he's popular with the people. He's popular with the people. So their plan is to discredit him publicly, embarrass him, get him to say something, a soundbite they could use against him. Last week, They tried to get him to either say that you don't have to pay taxes to Caesar, which would get him in trouble with Caesar, or that you do have to pay taxes to Caesar, which was very unpopular with the people. And so they thought they had him caught between the horns of a dilemma, but Jesus is too smart for that. As we said last week, these fools, thinking they can argue with God, they don't know he's God. He's done everything that he could do to establish his authority, his divine authority, right? He's what? He's banished sickness and demons from Israel. He's shown his authority over nature, calming a storm, walking on water, turning water into wine. He has even shown his authority over life and death, bringing people back to life and they 
don't even believe that he's a great prophet. That's what the people think he is. He's a great prophet and that he's Messiah. He's the promised one. So, last week one group took their turn. They failed miserably. They were publicly embarrassed. So the Sadducees are like, get out of the way. We'll, we'll show you how it's done. They take a turn trying to discredit Jesus. The scriptures say, now there came to him some of the Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection. This is one of the many things that they teach, but this is what is germane to their argument. Obviously, then Jesus has been teaching that there is a resurrection. In fact, it's a central doctrine to our faith, not just central, maybe one of the most important doctrines. Like we worship a risen Savior, amen? A resurrected Savior, and we have the promise of the resurrection. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This is the good news. This is the gospel. But the Sadducees taught that there was no resurrection. And they held quite a bit of authority in Israel. Who were the Sadducees? We always say in youth ministry, well, they're sad, you see. Because they deny the resurrection. That's what gives us hope. It's what gives us hope and joy. That we have a risen Savior and we will be with Him and we will be like Him. The Sadducees were an elite group of priests in the line of Zadok. You're familiar with some of the priestly lines. the, The Aaron and his sons, right? But after the exile, when the Jews came back to Jerusalem, the priestly line became the line of Zadok. So in order to be in the priestly line, you had to be a blood relative. So that always makes for an elite group. Think of a monarchy. Well, why do you guys get to be in charge? Because we're divinely appointed by God. We're the royal family. And so, small group, but the most powerful politically of all of Jesus' adversaries. The ruling council of Israel was a Sanhedrin made up of 70 ruling elders. The Sadducees accounted for most of the 70. So there's, there's few of them, but they held most of the positions of power. They're kind of... Think of them as like the Kennedys, Clintons, and Bushes all wrapped up into one family, you know. And only someone in the line of Zadok could be the high priest and, the, and one of the chief priests. So they've got a stranglehold on the whole temple system. And everyone has to come and pay a temple tax. Everyone has to come and make their sacrifices. You can only bring the right kind of animal. They determined what the right kind of animal was. They spent the temple tax money. They handled all the money changing. Whoever has the power to tax has all the power. And whoever has the power to spend the tax money has all the power. They were the ones in power. In fact, they probably had the most to lose out of all the groups if Jesus toppled the whole system. Interesting thing about the Sadducees is that they overemphasized the law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, known as Torah, right? Hebrew for law. Or sometimes we call it the Pentateuch. Remember from high school Math, Penta, five. So, five, first five books. Now, there was nothing wrong in saying that the first five books of the Bible are authoritative. We would agree it's God's Word, it's authoritative, but we would say that it isn't any more authoritative than any other book of the Bible, that it's all God's Word. 
tell you a funny personal story. In seminary, I turned in a paper once in a theology class and got a D on it, which I've never gotten a D on a paper in my life. And uh, I'm not one to run up to the professor, you know, like people do, and try to get their 96% to a 97. I'm, I'm not that guy. I'm a lot of other things, but I'm not that guy. But a D... And I'm reading the paper, and I'm like, he likes the whole paper. It was just one thing he underlined. I went up and talked to him, and I had, the way I had worded a sentence, I was giving my arguments from the Bible to back up my thesis. And I saved my quote from Jesus for my final argument. Remember what they teach you in school? Like, either put your best argument first or last. And so I saved it for last. In the way I worded the sentence, I said, and because Jesus said this, that's a better argument than my other two pieces of evidence. And he said to me, so Jesus' words in the Bible are more authoritative than the rest of the Bible. And I'm like, well, no, they're all Jesus' words. And he said, oh, you got an A. Changed my grade right there. I mean, that's how serious he was, and it was an important lesson to me. Be careful, you know, especially because there was this group of theologians called the Jesus Seminar back in the 70s and 80s who said only the words of Jesus are authoritative. And then they said a lot of the things that are in red letter in your Bible weren't actually the words of Jesus. And so they got together and they voted with the system of colored marbles. And one color marble was absolutely it's Jesus' words. The next color is maybe it's his words, but they've been twisted a little. And then another color was not his words, but probably something he could have said. And then the last marble was no way he said that. And by the time they were done voting, they only took the marbles from the theologians that were Jesus absolutely said this. And they got down to 17 verses, is all. And of course, they were all the verses that basically just said, love people. Right? So it was just theological liberalism in a, a, a really an absurd voting system. And so we, we don't ever want to say that I don't have anything against a red letter Bible. Mine's in red. Got red letters too. It's all God's word. All of it's inspired Down to the last word, Jesus said, not one jot or tittle will pass away. A a jot is the King James way of saying yod, which is the smallest Hebrew letter, which is like a little apostrophe looking thing. And a tittle is a little mark on the edge of a letter that if it wasn't there, it would be a different letter in Hebrew. So Jesus is saying every little Part of Scripture is authoritative, and it will. He's not here to abolish it; he's here to fulfill it. But the Sadducees said, "Look, if Moses said it and wrote it, then it's more authoritative than any other prophet or writer of the Bible." And this is the way rabbis would argue. And this is the way that the Pharisees ended up with all their traditions, like absurd traditions. Like on the Sabbath, you're not allowed to take X number of, more than X number of steps, because then that would be work. And you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. But what if I need to get to the other side of town to go eat with, you know, Grandma? Well, then what you need to do is take something from your house move it at the end of your 300 steps, and then technically that'll still be the threshold of the doorway of your house, and then you could take 300 more, and you could just take items from your house and stagger them across town and get wherever you want it to get. And, and they would do things like this, and you're like, well, where did you get that from? And they say, well, Rabbi so-and-so, very distinguished rabbi, he got it from Rabbi so-and-so, very distinguished rabbi, who got it from Rabbi so-and-so, who got it from Moses. And so the Sadducees were like, why don't we just skip all the middlemen and go straight to Moses? If Moses didn't say it, 
then we're not listening. Now, it's not that they rejected the rest of Scripture. They just said that the rest of Scripture, Old Testament, is commentary on the first five books. So, they denied the resurrection because they couldn't find anything in the first five books of the Bible that talked about resurrection. Now, Job says what? I know my Redeemer lives and I will see him. Well, that sounds like resurrection. They said, well, I know it sounds like resurrection, but since the first five books of the Bible don't teach resurrection, you have to interpret Job a different way. It can't possibly mean that. Otherwise, Moses would have talked about it in the first five books of the Bible. So perhaps Job was being metaphorical. Though I feel like I'm dying, my Redeemer lives and I will see him and that will help me through my suffering now. But he didn't literally mean I'll die and then see him later. The Sadducees actually taught that when you die, that's it. That's it. Fade to black, no spirit, no afterlife, which is strange that these were religious leaders and highly respected theologians. They knew the first five books of the Bible really, really well. And since they were in charge of the temple, they didn't really have anyone to argue against them. So if we want to look for like a modern day equivalent, believe it or not, the Sadducees would be like secular humanist professors. Especially like in a, in a liberal seminary like Harvard or Princeton, which has kind of rejected its founding principles. So you have these professors who teach theology and teach the Bible, but they teach it as just another old book. They teach it as literature. You'll even have some, get this, seminary professors, not at the seminary I went to, or the one Andy went to, or the one Nathan went to, secretly not believe at all in God or the God of the Bible. Yet, this is their livelihood. This is what puts food on the table. So I'm not going to tell anyone what I really believe, but it, in Pew Research, P-E-W, Research, um, when they're able to answer anonymously, it's a scary number of seminary professors that don't actually believe the Bible or even believe in God. For the longest time, the Archbishop of Canterbury in England was a professed atheist. Well, why do they allow him in that position? And why would he even want to serve in that position? Because they see themselves as liberators, liberating people from this false notion of this God who's not really there. Yet at the same time, they see the benefit in the belief of God for society. As long as we can keep it in the box and the religious zealots don't get all crazy on us. Like, so we don't have the crusades again or we don't have... And so they see value in religion because it keeps an orderly society and religious people tend to be the ones who do all the serving and tend to like build the hospitals and work in the hospitals. And so we don't want to get rid of religion, but we don't really believe there's a God. And that was the Sadducees, which is sad, you see. <laughs> what would compel them to be religious and run the whole sacrificial system if God doesn't care? They believe that God isn't providentially involved in the daily affairs of life. That there is a God and he is creator God because the first five books of the Bible clearly teach that. But he's completely hands off and there's nothing after you die. So there's no judgment day. There's no eternal rewards or punishments. There's no earthly rewards or punishments. So what's the point? And it... it I studied this a lot because I'm like, you know, maybe I'm reading this wrong. Maybe their doctrine's different because this doesn't make any sense to me. Why would you keep up the whole sacrificial system 
if you didn't believe that it was accomplishing anything. And the cynic in me has been taught, follow the money, right? Follow the money. This was their bread and butter. Why would a seminary professor who doesn't believe in God teach theology classes? Follow the money. What else is he going to do with his Ph.D. in theology? It doesn't really translate real well into any other career field. And all the cool, smart, hip people I get to hang out with and go to the A-list parties and think, oh, okay, okay. And you don't have a problem telling the people that I believe in God and I believe in his word, but privately, I don't believe in God and I don't believe in his word. So the Sadducees didn't really think there was any point to the whole sacrificial system, but, hey, the people think it's a big deal, so we're going to run with it. So we're going to run with it. Because it puts money in our pocket and we get to... We get to run the temple, and we, we get all the benefits of running the temple, and we get to go, we get the position of power in the Sanhedrin, we get to be in control, we get to be in authority. So you're like, so they were like secular humanists. Yes and no, because nobody was like an atheist back then. You wouldn't get very far in society like you can today. But for all intent and purposes, they were the secular humanists. They were the secular humanists of their day. They used religion not to glorify God or know God, but to prop up the religious system that they were benefiting from. So what are the things that they believed? I've already told you they they, they believe the first five books of the Bible were authoritative and from God, but that the rest of the Old Testament was just commentary on the first five books. If something in, outside of the Torah seemed to contradict the Torah, you had to reinterpret that teaching in order to bring it to conformity with their interpretation of the Torah. They rejected the traditions of the Pharisees, which we don't mind, good for them, we would reject the traditions of the Pharisees as well. But they denied God's providence and taught that there was no afterlife. So nothing's happening after you die, and God's not really intervening while you're alive. Pretty bleak outlook on life. And yet this is how most of our society lives. Many people deny God's providence. A lot of deists in our society. Yeah, God's out there, and he generally wants us to be good, but we're kind of on our own. And there's no judgment at the end of life. This is kind of the quasi-Christianity we find in our culture today. And secular humanism's catching on And so lots of people denying that there's an afterlife, which is strange because the majority of people on this planet believe in an afterlife. Why is that? Because God has put eternity on our heart, the Bible says. God has put eternity on our heart. But if we don't listen to God about eternity, then we're bound to make up all kinds of crazy systems about what it's like and how to get there. Furthermore, the the Sadducees denied uh, angels and spirits uh, in some form. Obviously, the first five books of the Bible talk about angels and spirits, so they didn't deny that there's any angels or spirits, but whatever the rest of the Bible had to say about angels and spirits, they denied. Paul mentions this in Acts uh, 23, 8, which uh, if you check that out this week, it's it's a pretty interesting passage. I think we start reading Acts and at some point we peter out and never really get to the end. There's a scene where he's taken in front of the Sanhedrin, and you got the Pharisees and the Sadducees ganging up on him, and Paul's so clever, he knows they don't agree doctrinally, and he says, well, you know, I was a Pharisee. 
And they're like, hey, that's right, you were a Pharisee. And he gets the Pharisees and the Sadducees to start arguing with each other. And so, kind of reminds me of an old Bugs Bunny cartoon where everybody starts fighting and Bugs just kind of slips out when nobody's noticing. Paul did this again when he was taken before the Roman governor and he said what? I'm a Roman citizen. I've got rights. You know, and they're like, oh, that, that, that's true. And so, when Jesus said to his disciples, when you go out and evangelize, be as wise as serpents, but gentle as doves, that's, that's what I put in that category. Here's Paul using the political system to his advantage to further the gospel. Not to his advantage to prosper himself, but to further the gospel. Okay. So, what were the Sadducees like? This is a quote from R. Kent Hughes. All in all, they were a tight little circle of mean-spirited religious aristocrats, insular, so they're their bubble, patrician, like good old boys club, heartless, philosophical materialists. So even though they're, they're, they believe in God and say they believe in God, they're really living like materialists. Like they, they really only focus on the material world. Josephus, and you're familiar with that name, that's an ancient historian, says that they were indeed more heartless than any other of the Jews. And that the Sadducees are even among themselves, even among themselves are rather boorish in their behavior. So they're kind of rude to each other. For people who claim to be erudite and sophisticated, they were pretty rough around the edges. And, and in their conversation with their peers, they're as rude as aliens. So that's, that's from Josephus. So this is an ugly group of men. And I would hazard to say that their, their families were similar. Just an ugly group of we're in charge of everything. We know better than everyone else. We have more power than everyone else. We're, we're untouchable. We're untouchable. We're, we're the only ones who can be priests, according to the line of Zadok. It's like a diplomatic immunity kind of thing. We can pretty much say anything, do anything, act any way we want. We don't have to be benevolent to people. We don't care what you think about us. You're going to come to the temple. You're going to pay your temple tax. You're going to make your sacrifices whether you like us or not. And you have no way to, like, vote us out. These were the Sadducees. And they come to Jesus to embarrass him publicly. To embarrass him publicly about the resurrection. So they say, Teacher, Rabbi, right, a little flattery, Rabbi, you're, you're, you're this great teacher. Moses wrote for us, and I'm sure they started just about all of their arguments with Moses wrote for us, that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he is childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. They're quoting Deuteronomy 25. This is the Leveret marriage stipulation. And it's a neat thing God put into the law. So, if, if your husband dies and you're a widow and you have no sons, who's going to take care of you? And who's going to carry on the family line? And so, maybe culturally God knew that maybe taking on a widow wasn't going to be people's priorities. So, he said, well, then the next brother in line needs to marry the widow. And keep moving on down the family line until you find a man who can marry this widow. Think of the book of Ruth. Right? Both of Ruth's husband died and no children. And she meets Boaz and finds out he is a close relative, a kinsman redeemer. And 
they put together this plan to get Ruth and Boaz together. It's a beautiful story. Beautiful story of God's faithfulness to take care of us in, in our time of need. In our time of need. To not abandon us. And so they correctly quote Moses and they correctly see this as authoritative. And Jesus is nodding. Yes, everything in caps on the screen is a direct quote from the Old Testament. But then they take this passage and use it to misinterpret God's design for marriage. To misinterpret God's design for marriage. And they throw this riddle at Jesus, which my studies uh, revealed that this riddle was around. They didn't just come up with this. It was like one of those riddles who people who think they're smart and wise use to like trip people up. Like, if God is omnipotent and can make anything, could he make a rock too heavy for him to lift? Oh, you got me there. There goes my faith right out the window. Right? This is what atheists say to mock Christians. Right? Well, if he can't make a rock too too heavy for him to lift, that he's not omnipotent. He's limited. You know, and you're like, shut up, basically. Don't. Jesus said it more nicely. He said, well, maybe he didn't. He said, don't cast pearls before swine. And probably calling a Jew swine is about the worst thing you could call him. So, um, look, if, if, if you don't have a humble, teachable spirit, you're going to ask these kinds of questions that you don't really want to hear the answer to. You're just looking to embarrass your opponent. And so they think they're embarrassing Jesus by concocting this ridiculous, absurd scenario. So there's seven brothers... And the first took a wife and died childless. And the second and the third married her. And in the same way, all seven died. And at this point, it's like, why are they still marrying this woman, right? You know, it's, she's like the black widow. Leaving no children behind either. So they must have died pretty fast. Finally, the woman died also. God spared the rest of the family. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Well, we got ourselves a conundrum here, Mr. Resurrection Teacher. What are you going to do with that one? And really, they could have just stopped at at two brothers. You'd have the same problem, but seven's that number of wholeness and completeness, and it just added to the absurdity of the situation. Like, we've got an incestuous environment now in the resurrection because of this. And they're like, we got them. And they're really only making themselves look stupid. And they don't realize it. That's, that's the sad thing. And they're sad, you see. Because they're so prideful and arrogant, but ignorant in their arrogance. Ignorant in their arrogance. And... Jesus explains that the reason they're having a problem here is because they're confusing this age with the age to come. But they don't believe there's an age to come. If there's only a this age, then they're going to mock what anyone has to say about the age to come. And Jesus says, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy... I love that line. But those who are considered worthy to attain... To that age and the resurrection, there's a little hidden warning, a little hidden rebuke. Those who are worthy, those who are humble, those who aren't doing what you're doing right now, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore. Like, what's the point of marriage? It's not what you think it's for or what I think it's for. It might be if you happen to think marriage is for the same purpose that God has designed it to be, then you have the right view of marriage. But marriage belongs to God, amen? 
He instituted it. He designed it. He decides what is a marriage and what the purpose of marriage is, what the primary purpose is. The primary purpose, Paul tells us, isn't what any of us were thinking when we got married, which is to picture Jesus' relationship with his bride, the church. Nobody's thinking that when they get engaged, right? (laughs) Will you marry me so that our relationship can bring glory to God, picturing Jesus' relationship with the bride? You know, they're like, what? Like, that's actually pretty romantic, but that's not what anybody says. Will you marry me so I can be the happiest man on the planet for the rest of my life? Of course. You fool. (laughs) You can't make each other the happiest people on the planet for the rest of your life. It's not what it was designed for. Marriage can bring much happiness. But that can't be what your sole purpose is because you're setting yourself up with false expectations. There will come a time when the two of you are not making each other happy. Right now, some of you are not making each other happy. Others are leaning into each other. Others are pushing each other away because you had a stressful morning trying to get ready for church and you still, you know, if you went to Sharon Maine's, you know, Skip's memorial service, she's like, she would say, you know, am I cute yet? Because he would always say, you're so cute. And she would tell him, you're practically perfect in every way. But after a fight, he'd say, am I practically perfect in every way yet? She'd say, well, you're getting there. And she would say, am I cute yet? And that kind of diffused their argument. Very, very sweet and very wonderful marriage advice. But Jesus says, there won't be any marriage in heaven. Which for some of you, that's good news. And you need to repent of that attitude. <laughs> and for others of you, you're like, what? What? This is the best part of my life here. How could it not be that way there? Or I miss my spouse. My, you know, you're a widower, a widower. And, and that's what I'm looking forward to. Beloved, he or she, if they place their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, is going to be there. They're going to be there. And if God can do something as wonderful as marriage here, you got to trust that whatever he's going to do there is way more wonderful, beyond your wildest dreams, right? I mean, people think of heaven, and they're like, okay, I'll take what I know, and I'll just clean it up a little, and magnify the parts I like, and diminish the parts I don't like, and that's heaven. You are so wrong. You are so wrong. We can't even comprehend the glory of heaven. I don't care what the three-year-old boy said when he came back. I don't don't think he got it. The Bible gives us a description of heaven. Read Randy Alcorn's book on heaven. It's like this thick, not because the Bible's filled with lots of illustrations of heaven, but because Randy Alcorn is just so thorough. Um, There's really like that much description of heaven in the Bible. And he compiles it all and gives you a lot of commentary on it. But at the end of the day, beloved, as much as this this creation that we love so much and the beauty that we enjoy here and the love we enjoy here, it's nothing compared to heaven. We can't even comprehend it because we're fallen. It's going to blow us away. First and foremost, he will be there. Jesus will be there. And we will see him as he is, not through a veil, not through a glass dimly lit, like Paul says, not not through a foggy glass. We will see him as he is, and we will be without sin, and we won't have any worry, any insecurities, any myself getting in the way. Our relationships will be so much better than your best relationship here. So don't worry about this not being married in heaven. God's got something much better for you. 
something much better. You will enjoy heaven with your loved ones, guaranteed. What's it going to look like? I'm not sure. Lots of praising God. That's a good thing. For they cannot even die anymore, so we don't need to, like, refill heaven. Nobody's dying. We don't need babies, which is the second purpose of marriage, is for procreation. It's unnecessary in heaven. We, 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 nobody's dying up there. We don't need to replace the population. Because they are like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So that solves that riddle. That was easy. And then Jesus says this. Oh, and uh, by the way, (laughs) but that the dead are raised, getting back to your question about the resurrection, not your stupid marriage riddle, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, maybe the most important passage in the Pentateuch when God reveals who he is to Moses. And go back and listen to Nathan's sermon on that passage. Where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Jacob and the uh, God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, which is what God would say if they ceased to exist. But if they're still alive, they've been resurrected, then he is the God present tense. And actually, the the verb tense in the Hebrew actually has a future tense connotation. I, I will be the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Meaning that those who are dead to us are not dead to God. All live to him. Even those that will be judged and suffer eternal punishment all live to him. No annihilationism. No teaching in the Bible that people just cease to exist. So let's get back to that question then about the Sadducees. Why, why would they teach this? Why would they teach that there's no resurrection? Why would they want to believe there's no resurrection? Well, if there's no resurrection, then there's no judgment day. If there's no judgment day, you can pretty much live however you want now and not fear the consequences. And even if you believe there is a God like the Sadducees did, since there's no judgment day and there's no rewards or punishments here on earth for your behavior, you can live like you are your own God. And isn't that the original temptation? To to be your own God. So why would anyone want to misinterpret the Bible? Because our sin nature tempts us to be our own God. And you can really back yourself up if you can justify it with the Scriptures. Well, God said... Well, yes, he said that, but you are not interpreting that correctly. You are interpreting it in such a way that it gets you what you want. How could people revere the authority of the Bible but misinterpret it so badly? Uh, Matthew gives us a clue. Matthew's account of this same story, he adds this line that's missing in Luke's account. Matthew twenty two twenty nine. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken. Which is a bold thing to say publicly to the who's who theologically. You're not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. You don't understand the scriptures. You have the scriptures, but you don't understand it. We have this saying we like to use around here. And I think we got it from John MacArthur. The meaning of the Scripture is the Scripture. You don't have the Scripture unless you have the meaning 
of the Scripture. Yes, you're holding the Scriptures. Yes, it's God's Word. But if you don't interpret it correctly, you, the power of the Scripture has been void in your life. Many people incorrectly use the Bible to justify their own ideas or perpetuate their own position of power. I've watched this happen throughout my ministry where Bible-believing people who are in an argument with someone else will try to back up their argument by twisting a scripture out of context. Or sometimes they don't even bother with the scripture, they just say, God told me. Well, I can't argue with that. Oh, but God clearly told us the opposite of that right here. And I don't think God would contradict himself. Give us one set of instructions and you got a private, personal set of instructions directly from God. Well, we don't want to deny the resurrection. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Sadducees. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we have been testifying that God raised Christ, whom you say he did not raise. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. You just put your faith in another dead guy. There's been billions of dead guys throughout history. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished. They put their faith in the wrong person too. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, right? If we hoped in Christ just so I can have like a better life right now, my best life right now, then we are of all people most to be pitied. But we are putting our faith in Christ for the next life. Amen? And because we're doing that, that makes all the difference in this life, the way we live. It does make a difference in this life, but only if you're putting your faith in Christ for the next life, for eternal life. Now you can endure suffering. Now you can do work, not to earn your way into heaven or earn God's pleasure, but out of the joy in your heart that you've been saved and he's done all the work on the cross. So don't let anyone deny the resurrection to you. It's our everything. It's where you should be putting all your faith, not in this world and that things will get better here. I'm putting my faith in the next, where all will be perfect. And so I can endure this life now. And I can help to alleviate some suffering off the backs of my fellow man. And, And I can glorify God by doing good in this world. So I'd, I'd like you to consider as we close, and if I could get to the next slide. Well, if you could see the next slide, it would say, questions for reflection. <laughs> it wouldn't have a picture of the dark side of the earth. <laughs> Are you ever afraid to consider that you might be wrong about your interpretation of the Bible, or any situation for that matter? Like, are, are you that kind of person that you, you can't say, well, I, I believe strongly in this, but I'm willing to entertain the notion that I could be misinterpreting things incorrectly. And, and if you can't, if you're not known as the kind of person that can admit they're wrong or, or might even be wrong, is it because of your pride that you just don't like saying I'm wrong? Or is it because you're fearing the ramifications of accepting this new interpretation, like, ooh, wow, if, if I'm wrong and that's the way it is, I'm going to have to make some changes, and I don't want to make any changes in my life. You know, so, so what is it? is it? Is it your pride, or is it your fear, or is it a combination of both? And then secondly, you know, look at your life and ask the people around you, do I have any false presuppositions 
Well, what does that word mean? You, do you presuppose? Is there anything that you're like, no matter what you tell me, like, I'm not changing my mind about this. Now, let's move on with our discussion. Well, what if your this is wrong? What if your presupposition is, is wrong? So when you're kind of stuck in a disagreement with people, you have to keep backing up until you get all the way to the place where you're starting your argument in your mind. And make sure that that starting point is the truth of God and that you're interpreting it correctly. And you might have to entertain the notion that maybe I've been misinterpreting that passage or the application of that passage incorrectly all my life. Now, I'm not encouraging you to throw out all of your convictions today. But anyone who says, I have all the right interpretations, is an arrogant fool. I'm not going to get in the pulpit and say, I have all the right interpretations. And you're like, well, then what are you doing up there? I'm hopefully modeling for you how we humbly search the scriptures together and prayerfully arrive at the truth of God so we can glorify him and rightly present him to the world. Amen? And that's what we aim to do this week at VBS. Kids have all kinds of weird presuppositions about God, so we got to help them out. Let's pray, and then uh, VBS leaders meet me over in the chapel. Father God, thank you that your word is truth and it never changes, but give us the courage to change our interpretation of your truth if we need to. Make us humble, Lord. Thank you there is a resurrection. We know that for a fact. We can take that to the bank because Christ is risen. And he has promised that all those who put their faith in him will rise with him. Lord, anyone hearing this sermon today, whether they're here, they're online, they don't have the hope of the resurrection, Lord. Give them that confidence. Give them the gift of faith and repentance that they would turn from their sins, put their trust solely in Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. Give them that hope and that confidence. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.